This is an ABC podcast. It's Christmas Day, or close enough to it, and most of us will be consuming some form of chocolate. I prefer dark chocolate, but I know there are those who eat milk chocolate and even white chocolate, which we'll learn is not really a chocolate at all. Chocolate is one of the Western world's greatest treats and even said to have beneficial health properties. But there's a darker side to the industry that produces chocolate. For years, St John's Cathedral has handed out Easter eggs to worshippers over Easter, but not this year. Dean Dr Peter Catt says it was not an easy decision, but they could not continue knowing the dark side of the chocolate industry. I'm really, I have to say, a devastated chocoholic, and I've discovered that so much of the chocolate we eat might have been produced by child slaves and certainly has been produced by child labour. Hello, this is Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince. Today we trace the story of chocolate, its connection with colonialism, the Industrial Revolution and modern-day slavery. But first, what are the main ingredients of this delicious treat and where did it come from? So cacao is probably the main ingredient that goes into chocolate. And then another major ingredient is, of course, sugar. If you are buying dark chocolate, then you have a higher volume of cacao in it. If you're buying milk chocolate, you have the milk added to it. And normally, this also contains a bit more sugar. My name is Ingrid Fromm. I'm a researcher based at the Bern University of Applied Sciences, the School of Agricultural, Forest and Food Sciences. And I am currently also a board member of the Swiss Platform for Sustainable Cocoa. And in the case of white chocolate, then there is no cacao liquor in it, but rather butter. So that's why that chocolate is white and not dark. When you're eating chocolate, it depends on what you're eating. Principally, if you're eating some kind of cheap chocolate bar, you're eating a lot of sugar, you're eating a lot of fat and additives. My name is Carol Off, and I am principally a journalist and a book writer. Carol is also the author of Bitter Chocolate, investigating the dark side of the world's most seductive sweet. But if you're eating good chocolate, if you're eating pure chocolate, you're eating something that is made essentially from cocoa beans, a combination in some order of cocoa butter with cocoa solids, with cocoa the actual cocoa powder. And the darker it is, the less fat, the less butter it's in and more cocoa that's in it. And really good chocolate is something that is the most perfect and exquisite food on the planet that actually melts the same temperature identically to that of your body. There's something quite seductive about the idea that chocolate melts at the same temperature as the human body. Before we get seduced, let's just clarify some terms. The unprocessed bean from which chocolate is derived is known as cacao. Once the bean has begun to be processed, ground and roasted, it's known as cocoa. So where did this tree that grows this now famous bean originate from? Scientists have found two different centres of origin. 
One is the Mesoamerican region. So this Mesoamerican region is present-day Mexico, southern part of Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula, Guatemala, Belize, Honduras, and then the Amazon Basin, the Amazon River Basin in South America. And a group of people found something interesting in this tree and decided that you could grow these pods, which the tree produces seeds in a very football-shaped pod, and then you could split it open and dry the beans, as they were called, and then roast them in their shells, pull the shells off, grind them on what is called a matate, which is a stone grinding area, and then take that paste and make drinks. My name is Howard Yana Shapiro, and I'm a distinguished senior fellow working at Resilient Landscapes based at the World Agroforestry Center in Nairobi and a senior fellow at the College of Agriculture and Environmental Sciences, Department of Plant Sciences at the University of California at Davis. He's also the co-author of Chocolate, History, Culture and Heritage. Now the drinks weren't very sweet because it's not really a sweet tasting drink in its rawest form. And so they looked around for sweeteners. One has remembered that sugarcane was an old world crop, not a new world crop. So the first cacao was sweetened with anona or custard apple. They then added a little bit of honey later on. And then they had spices they added to it, most oftentimes chili. So now you have this drink, which doesn't really have much to do with what we think of as hot chocolate today. But it was a very powerful drink that was used by the hierarchy of the Mayan people and the hierarchy of the Aztecs. We know that in pre-Hispanic times in the Yucatan Peninsula and the Mesoamerican region, the Mayas and the Aztecs and the Olmec cultures greatly valued cacao and they consumed it as a thick and bitter beverage. And this is where the name actually comes from. So chocolatl, translated into English, is, is chocolate. And we also know that cacao, the beans, had great value and they were used as currency to trade for other products. But back then, it's very interesting to note that cacao was consumed as a beverage, a bitter, thick beverage that was mixed with water, black pepper, vanilla, and other spices. And this beverage was discovered by the Spanish conquistadors when they came to Mexico in the Mesoamerican region in the 16th century. So they're the ones that brought this exotic drink back to Spain initially. When we talk about cacao chocolate coming to Europe, we have to remember that the people who controlled in many ways the culture, the language, were these religious orders that came to bring Christianity under the Spanish crown to Mexico. The Mayans, the Zapotecs, the Mixtecs, the Huaxtecs, the Aztecs, they imposed their view of the world on all these people. So the priests and the nuns came and they saw this drink and they wrote treatises about what it was good for. It was good for medicine. It was good for nervousness. And as that moved back to Europe, it came with rules about how the drink should be used. It became culture. So there was a chocolate culture that was involved with the drinking. It wasn't just like taking a sip of a beverage. There was all this assertion that it had medicinal properties. 
as well as curative properties, as well as a beverage to be admired. It wasn't a popular product back then because it was actually quite bitter and not to the taste of Europeans. So one of the first things that happened was that it was sweetened initially with honey and eventually with sugar. And so once the Europeans consumed chocolate with sugar, it became a very, very popular product. And it was actually adopted by the European aristocracy. And I'm wondering, as it became popular, how was it grown? Was it grown in plantations? And and who were the the laborers who actually grew it? In places like what is now Cuba, it was land that had been cleared for other crops, and they grew it there in more of, I would call, a large scale. But in Brazil, it was grown in the forest in a system called cabruca, under the trees. In Mexico, Guatemala, these places, they grew enough for their own consumption, but not for a high level of export. It really became Brazil as one of the largest exporters in the world. So you had both of these systems, semi-forested and then forested. And the people who grew it were traditional people. It wasn't part of the slave trade as you had in sugarcane. And so it stayed a smallholder crop. It wasn't until the Industrial Revolution, when the process of turning cacao into cocoa was mechanised, that cocoa became widely available to ordinary people across Europe. It was a series of innovations that took place around the 19th century. One very big innovation was the hydraulic machine that enabled the pulverisation of this cacao, this cake, into powder. This was created by a Dutch called Van Houten. He also discovered how to use alkaline salts to remove that bitterness of the cacao. The Industrial Revolution brought about an ability to extract the cocoa solid, the actual powder, from the butter. Once they were able to separate those two things by virtue of using hydroelectric presses, which the Dutch actually developed, they were able to separate those things and then invent what we now call chocolate bars. In Switzerland, here in Switzerland, we have some of the bigger innovations. For instance, probably one of the most groundbreaking things was the addition of milk powder into the cacao and the creation of the milk chocolate. So this took place in the later 19th century. And we have big players which are still around nowadays, like Lindt, Frey, and other companies. We know that they were the first ones to create this milk chocolate, which is very popular and very loved around the world. This was a huge breakthrough for the market of cocoa and for industrialized food products, because not only was it something that was easy to sell and to transport and to package, but it was also affordable to the masses. And so this became hugely popular thing that they started to make actual chocolate bars. As the popularity of chocolate grew, so did the demand for cacao beans. So how did growers keep up with that demand? In the 16th and 17th century, this product was sourced from the Americas and it came to Europe. But the second Atlantic crossing that really meant that we could 
consume at a wider scale the cacao bean was the crossing of the bean from the Americas to the African continent. So the first place where the cacao bean was introduced was in Sao Tome. It's an island of the West African coast. We can attribute that to the Portuguese who brought the cacao bean to Sao Tome in 1855. And they noticed that the climate, very humid, very tropical climate, was ideal for cacao production. Eventually, the bean made its way from Sao Tome, from the island to the mainland, the Gold Coast back then. So we're talking about present-day Ghana and Ivory Coast. And currently, we can sustain a wide industry because 70% of the cacao production actually takes place in West Africa. And the main producers currently are actually Ivory Coast. Ivory Coast produces over 40% of the world production. And together with Ghana, it represents about 60% of the market. So, of course, it is a very important crop in the West African context. We have other big players like Cameroon, like Nigeria. And then in Asia, we have production also taking place in Indonesia. And it is possible to have all this consumption because of the production in different areas of the world. In this program, we're discussing the history of chocolate and its connection with colonialism, the Industrial Revolution and modern day slavery. So how much chocolate is being produced today and who is doing the producing? I think the latest statistics from 2021 is that we're looking at about 5 million tonnes of cocoa being produced worldwide. It's mainly produced by small-scale producers, usually very resource-poor producers. They produce the cacao beans in less than two hectares of land. For instance, in the West African context, in Ghana and Ivory Coast, it tends to be a family type of labor. If you're a producer that has maybe more than two hectares of land, you may hire labor for that particular season, the harvest season. But it tends to be family labor. And this is why we also know that there's cases of of also child labor. And this also has to do with the fact that the producers are paid very little money for, for the cacao beans. And poverty is also a driver, a driving force behind child labor. Most of cocoa production is done on very small farms. And this was something that was part of the farming practices of these countries. But it was a benefit to the big corporations because they don't really have They don't have any responsibility for what happens in those very remote places. These were family farms where you had to grow some food for your family. Then you grew some cocoa to sell. You grew some other products that may have been either for the local market or for the international market. But you principally made your cash from selling your cocoa. And so this was quite lucrative for these in a very relative way, for these small farmers, these independent farmers. But as the pressure, the international pressure grew to bring the price down, it became untenable for them to try and produce it at that price. And that's where the problem starts. These small-scale farmers do not have the same economic power as the large chocolate corporations. And the price they're able to get for their cacao has been decreasing for decades. Chocolate manufacturers are being challenged to tackle the industry's most pressing ethical issue, 
child labour. Tim Costello is the chief executive of World Vision Australia. What we know is that 61% of the children who work on cocoa farms, so we get to eat cheap chocolate, 61% don't get to go to school. He says the majority of the world's cocoa is sourced from West Africa. I'm Molly Harris Olson. I'm the CEO of Fairtrade Australia and New Zealand and the former chair of the global board of Fairtrade. We did a report, I think around 2015, that showed that farmers still everywhere in the world are living in that below a dollar a day poverty line in cocoa. In the 1980s, the average value that went back to the farmer in a chocolate bar would have been around 16%. And that's down to between 3 and 7% now. So it has continued to go down. And the problem really is their lack of power and influence in their supply chains. They are really forced to take the price that these very large companies can force through their power in the marketplace and through their commodity trading. It's obvious that countries where there was economic depression or difficulty in creating markets for products, this business of cocoa became quite interesting to a lot of countries. So we see Cote d'Ivoire or Ivory Coast and Ghana being two of the principal places where now most of the world's cocoa comes from. But very quickly, it became something where they needed very cheap labor. I think what started to actually put the pressure on the cocoa producers to create something that was cheap, what happened there was that the commodities markets wanted this product, but they wanted it as cheaply as possible. And so all the pressure became on those regions to find ways of producing these beans for a price that was the lowest possible for the market that was developing internationally. So what did that mean? Where did they start to look for the labour that was cheaper than the labour they had to pay for? They started, the farmers, as they looked for cheaper and cheaper labour in order to actually harvest and produce these crops, they, first of all, turned to their own families, as farmers do. So their own children began to work. And then their own children were children who couldn't go to school anymore because they needed to work on the farm. And that still wasn't cheap enough. And so the farmers started looking for cheaper and cheaper labor. And that's when you find a new commerce, a new business emerges in West Africa, which is the marketing of labor from other parts of the region where the economy is even more depressed, where there's even less activity, and you start to find a movement of people from places where they are really desperate to these cocoa farms where the farmers needed cheap labor and began to find it, first of all, among the adult population and then inevitably among children. In the West African country of Ivory Coast, more than 600,000 children are working on cocoa fields. It's a region that produces about 70% of the world's cocoa, but it's also one of the world's poorest regions, with little workforce regulation. And the majority of those children are working in slave-like conditions. The first children I encountered who were working on a farm in Ivory Coast, I asked them if they had ever had chocolate. And they didn't know what I was talking about. These are children who slave 12 hours a day in deplorable conditions in order to produce these beans. They actually tasted the beans themselves, raw beans. They would grab handfuls of it in order to get some nutrients because they were being fed so badly. I asked them if they had ever had chocolate. 
No, they hadn't. And I began to try to explain what it was. And I took a piece of paper from my notebook and I rolled it up and I said, these beans are made into something. It's about this big and it's sweet and it's delicious. And children in my country eat this all the time. And they thought this was just a wonderful thought. And I told them how much it was, which was the equivalent to a week's pay, maybe, for this one chocolate bar. And they were in awe of this idea. And I asked them, I said, do you want them to know where it comes from? Do they want, do you want me to tell the children of Canada and Australia about you? And they said, yes, let them know. Let them know about us. The chief executive of World Vision Australia, Tim Costello, has just returned from a trip to Ivory Coast and Ghana. He was there to investigate child exploitation in the chocolate industry. These are the most basic villages you will ever see, where children are using machetes, uh, being exposed to chemical sprays uh, and getting burns on their skin and in their eyes. And with the exploitation comes trafficking. It's estimated about 12,000 of the children working in the cocoa fields in West Africa have been smuggled in and sold. I'm not sure that the companies were aware because they're big corporations. They are focused on the price of the bean and not who's producing it. I think when, when the various NGOs who were working in the region were sounding the alarm that it appeared that there was a form of slave labor and a form of, of children being moved from uh, not just other regions, but other countries into the cocoa producing regions in order to work on these farms for no money. When the NGOs drew this their attention, they denied it and they said this wasn't the case or that they didn't know anything about it. And then eventually it started to turn up in the political systems of countries, including in Washington, where the NGOs began to put pressure on members of Congress to start examining what was happening in cocoa. The analogy they gave was that we seem to be more worried about the practices of, of harvesting tuna fish in the oceans than we are in the practice of producing cocoa. And so they were drawing attention to this, and then it became of political interest to sort of question whether the chocolate companies were involved in some pretty bad practices in order to produce their product. In Britain, Cadbury's has made a commitment that its popular dairy milk chocolate will no longer use cocoa beans sourced from farms using child labour. Nowadays, even the big companies, the industries are working very hard to make sure that this doesn't happen and that producers are paid more. So nowadays we're talking about paying farmers a living income. So this means that they have a decent income for the products that they're producing for coffee or for cacao. And hopefully in the next 10 years, in the next, next decade, we're going to see a transformation in the sector better incomes for cacao. And this, of course, is very important for consumers in Australia and in Europe and different parts of the world because we, of course, want to consume a product where we know that we're providing a good income for people at the source and not being a driving force of a difficult situation for farmers. 
Some of them, like Cadbury, before Cadbury was purchased by Kraft, took the view that they were really trying to do cocoa in a proper and sustainable way that avoided child labor. They committed to fair trade back in 2009, I believe it was, and they did brilliant work with us over many years. What's really happened, though, for most of them is they have decided that they want to do their own self-certification. So they become sort of the judge and jury about how, how good their programs are, and then they publicize things as if this was some sort of independent process. It's not. What's interesting to Fairtrade is that while we absolutely applaud all these companies for some of the work that they're trying to do, in the absence of independent, transparent auditing of these value chains, it's basically a don't ask, don't tell global economy in all of these commodities. And it's one of the reasons that fair trade exists, because there's a plausible deniability for any company if they aren't on the ground, if they don't have producers and cooperatives in their systems that actually have some value and influence over what's happening in those value chains. So don't ask, don't tell global economy. And they will talk about sustainability. They will talk about things. And sometimes they're doing interesting things, but there is no systematic, transparent and robust way with engineered outcomes, be able to tell what's really going on in those supply chains. And fair trade are unique in that sense because they are systematically in that robust way and transparent way, identifying where are the problems. And then rather than calling out these communities and sort of penalizing them again as the victims, Fairtrade has very wonderful processes that support these communities to be able to overcome these problems. So what percentage of the global trade in chocolate falls within the fair trade system? Oh, look, it would be less than 10%. And typically what happens is that companies, even when they do invest in fair trade, like Cadbury, they will do one product that's their kind of big flagship product. So the dairy milk bar right across the world was all 100% fair trade. That sort of sends a signal to the market that we're good guys, we're doing the right thing, we're out there. But actually 99% of the rest of their chocolate, actually it was probably only 90, I think the dairy milk bar was probably about 10% of their global sales. But, you know, the rest of it is still the regular slave chocolate. I often feel that people want to do the right thing when it comes to chocolate. People want to make ethical choices. They want to be ethical consumers. And so I think that there are things like fair trade cocoa, fair trade cacao, fair trade whatever, is a way to maybe get a bit more fair practices into production of cocoa. Then people feel, okay, well, I'm buying fair trade chocolate. I'm buying an ethical product. And so I'm doing my part. And so people tend to think, okay, well, I've done my job here. I think we have more power as citizens than we do as consumers. If all of us who care about this, if we all bought fair trade chocolate, it would probably not make a dent in the practices of the chocolate production in the world. But if there were laws passed in Australia or Canada or the United States that it made it illegal, if it was incumbent on them by law to say, we haven't done anything wrong here, that we can prove that there are no bad child labor practices involved here. If that was the case, this problem would be eliminated. The problem of abusive child labor practices in cocoa would no longer exist. But we're not going to fix that, in my view, through our purchasing power. What do we do if we want to keep eating chocolate? 
like the dark chocolate egg I've been looking forward to all year. I will never tell people to stop eating chocolate because I love chocolate and I will continue to eat it. How can we not? I think to some extent, mitigate the problems with buying fair trade chocolate. I'm not going to dismiss that. I think it's still better than not doing that. I've seen the fair trade farms. I know they do better practices than the others do. But I think that the only way this changes is that if you start insisting that your government changes laws and makes it impossible for any product, including chocolate, to come into your country that has not proven to have no bad labor practices in it. And so enjoy your luxury, enjoy these moments, but let's change the laws and start to see these practices come under the scrutiny of international labor practices. Carol Off, author of Bitter Chocolate, investigating the dark side of the world's most seductive sweet. My other guests, Ingrid Fromm, researcher based at the Byrne University of Applied Sciences. Professor Howard Shapiro, co-author of Chocolate, History, Culture and Heritage. And Molly Harris-Olson, CEO of Fair Trade Australia and New Zealand. Today's sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.